0: Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Zyla Floyd Zadkovich. Uh, Today, in the absence of Luke Zadkovich, but you still have Callum Chain, and we have Leo Reese Murphy, um, deputizing for Luke, a fellow Australian one-in-one-out. Welcome back on the podcast, Leo.
1: Great to be here, Callum. Great to be back.
0: We were just discussing that last time you were on, you were looking at an Australian case, so it's good that we've got you now on a... Uh, English law case, and not
1: just any English law case, a Supreme Court decision, a very recent Supreme Court decision. Absolutely, and a super interesting one as well, clarifying a particularly controversial area of law, so it'll be an interesting discussion ahead. Before, I suppose before we get into it,
0: it does clarify this area of law, you know, provides a great amount of clarity in this area of law. It sort of upholds the key case around this point of law while really digging into it and kind of having a bit of a go at how that decision was made it says you got you kind of got there in the
1: end somehow but the decision was was completely different to the way that we should have gone about it absolutely and for our listeners it's philip and barclays bank uk PLC. the citation is 2023 usk 25 a decision of the supreme court on appeal from Court of Appeal.
0: And this is one which has done the, um, the kind of unusual or perhaps unusual, I've not seen data on this, but the perhaps unusual, um, process through the courts where the, uh, the decision from the initial trial judge was overturned in the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal was then overturned in the Supreme Court. So whenever that happens, you know, that it's a, a reasonably narrow point, although In this judgment, uh, or in the judgment of the Supreme Court, not that narrow, because Lord Leggett, who gave the leading judgment, um, was agreed with by Lord Reed, Lord Hodge, Lord Sales, and Lord Hamblin. So unanimity at Supreme Court level, but um, unanimous in overturning the uh, Court of Appeal, which
1: in turn had overturned the trial judge. Absolutely. And it may be helpful just to give a factual overview from the outset. The case begins with a Mr. Dr. Philip who was contacted in February of 2018 by a fraudster who claimed to be working for the Financial Conduct Authority in conjunction with the national crime agency. Now, the case concerns APP fraud, which is Authorised Push Payment Fraud. And the way it works is generally a fraudster tricks the victim into voluntarily transferring a sum to the fraudster by posing to be a legitimate payee. Now, in this case, they told Dr. Philip that his savings in an investment firm called Tilney were being investigated for fraud, and that for the safety of his account, he had to move it to a third-party account that would be safe from this alleged fraud. Now, a feature that was noted by Lord Leggett as being particularly striking was that Dr Philip was even persuaded not to cooperate with the police when Mr. Dr Philip and his wife received a visit from a police officer warning them that the police force believed a fraud was being perpetrated upon them. The sophistication of the fraud was also evident in the fact that they, had a, they were able to spoof the number displayed on his telephone to actually appear as if it was coming from the NCA and on another occasion actually appear as if it was coming from the police force. So there's a fairly high level of sophistication in this particular fraud.
0: Funnily enough, I've seen that fraud um, play out, um, not in anything like the, the detail or duration um, that happened to um, Dr. and Mrs. Uh, Philip, but I was once uh, on the end of a scam call and the the number they were calling from was the civil was the the court of appeal civil division listings office which was a number that was saved in my phone so that so the the my phone rang and and it's and it came up with the contacts court of appeal listings and i answered the phone and it was somebody obviously uh pretending that i had uh, some kind of tax liability or something but it, but they, they there is this ability kind of concerning ability that Forsters have to basically throw a phone number, which is not the one they're actually calling from, um, and that you know obviously was one of the many reasons why uh, Doctor and Mrs Phillips um, kind of fell for this this scam. And it's quite a sad story, really. The you know the, they ended up losing seven hundred thousand um, pounds, that uh, was the bulk of their life savings. Um, it's it's really not a very happy story, and I think the key. The key factual point in all of this is that, yes, they were defrauded. Yes, looking back, they would definitely not have made the payments from Barclays. Um, yes, the payments were to a fraudster. um but at no point were they out of um or out of control, and I say that kind of loosely, because obviously they were they were they were out of control in the sense that they were they were in the hands of the fraudster. Um, but they 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 were the ones who were making all the payments, they were the ones who were insisting on the payments being made despite issues being raised by Barclays, despite visits from the police. They were the ones who were insistent that this money must be transferred ultimately into the fra- into the hands of the fraudster. And that's yep. significant um, in the context of the claim. I suppose their, their key contention is that the bank, so Mrs Phillips, their, their, her claim was that the bank was responsible for the loss of the £700,000. Um, because because she argued the bank owed her a duty um, under its contract with her or otherwise at common law not to carry out her payment instructions if the bank had reasonable grounds for believing that she was being defrauded. That is the legal point that gets us to the um, to the Supreme Court effectively, because it all stems back to this concept of what duty does a bank owe its customers, where there are question marks over the nature of a instruction given from the, from the customer to the bank.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. And what was, I think, particularly interesting in this case was not only did Dr. Phillips uh, and his wife actually authorise personally the payments by attending at the branch and then asking for the payments to be made, but further, Barclays actually called them to confirm whether they wanted to make these payments on each occasion. Yeah. They expressly confirmed. So there can be no doubt that the payments were authorised by uh, Dr. Phillips and his wife, Mrs. Phillips.
0: The, kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but this is the key the key difference between a lot of the banking, fina- or the banking fraud decisions that you see and a lot of the banking fraud decisions that are referred to in this judgment is that often you have somebody doing something on behalf of somebody else. So somebody comes along and says, I'm entitled to instruct this bank to make this payment. The bank makes the payment and then the, the person um, whose account has been drained comes along and says, well, no, that person never had the authority to make that payment on my behalf or to give you instructions to make that payment. Whereas here, we have a kind of, I suppose, an attempt to extend the law on that duty to a situation where the the, the person in question was the one giving the, giving the uh, instructions to the bank. The, the charge against the bank is you didn't do enough. To make sure that i wasn't being defrauded here in making that payment i suppose the reason the, the, the way we get here procedurally is it's a an attempt by the bank to dismiss the claim on a summary basis they're, they're, they're saying as a matter of law this claim must fail because we don't owe any duty of the sort um of the sort. this is this this is an um a kind of series of appeals from that initial summary judgment hearing
1: absolutely which then leads us to the main line of authority that was considered in this case, which was a line of authority the Quince Care decision and authorities that followed. And I guess to give a brief overview of the Quince Care decision, uh, it was decided in, reported in 1992, but it was actually decided in 1988. So initially when the decision came out, it didn't receive a, a, a prominence and it wasn't a, a trigger to a massive... Wave of litigation came out quietly, but then came on to, as uh, Justice Leggett says, have quite a prominent afterlife.
0: this is this is an interesting case where where or at least at the at Supreme Court level, the case that the, the Queen's care case or the case from which this Queen's care duty originally came from hadn't received a kind of detailed scrutiny which it which it now receives. It's it's interesting to, to see the way that, that the Supreme Court looks at the Quince Care case. Effectively, this judgment is a really good starting point, maybe even goes further than a starting point, for any questions around the Quince Care duty, because it looks in so much detail at all the different cases that have, that, you know, Quince Care itself, but also what preceded it and what followed
1: it. I, I think that, and that's the very point, was that the, the decision of Quince Care, which decided... I mean, as Callum said a moment ago, and just just to repeat it for our listeners, that he, the, the courts need to strike a fair balance and say that a banker must refrain from executing an order from the customer for as long as the banker is put on an inquiry, which means that they have reasonable grounds for believing that the order is an attempt to misappropriate the funds of the customer of the bank. And what what was particularly it's interesting about the way Justice Leggett reasoned mm. that decision was he actually started reasoning it from policy considerations. So it was – uh, he found that there was, on one hand, a, a duty, which was the the bank's mandate, that the terms of the mandate given to the customer was that it had to comply with the customer's lawful instructions. But on the other hand, there was this competing duty, which was a duty to exercise reasonable care and skill in exercise in, – executing that mandate of the customer and so in the face of these two conflicting duties uh, the just stern he's on a just stern resiled by looking at and weighing up policy considerations to reach a resolution
0: exactly and and i think it's it's a really important point these conflicting Obligations of a of a bank, right? Because if you, I suppose, we, we we kind of assume that the bank is always acting in a in a good way, right? If you don't have a strict set of rules that the bank is required to follow in in, in its performance of its job as your bank, there's a, there, you you're inviting a different problem, right? If you 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 need it to be clear to the bank that if you ask them to make a payment on your behalf. They will make it, provided that your account is in funds to make it. If you, if you lose that core principle, then you put a lot of a lot of power in the hands of the bank who you're depositing money with to say, actually, I'm not going to make this payment. I choose not to right now. I want to think about it. I want to look into it a bit more. So you have this, this, this kind of obvious duty of the bank, but almost so obvious that you forget about it, which is when you ask the bank to do something, to make a payment, provided that your account is in funds to make that payment, the bank has to make it. And you open up big series of issues if you if you let the bank get away with not making that payment um and then and then, then you on the other hand, and this is this is the this is the kind of difficulty i guess of the of the quince care duty is you have situations where the bank is actually on enough notice to say, "Well, hang on a minute is this really a payment I should be making um and what you see going through the cases, and we can maybe pick out. A couple um but this you know this judgment probably goes through I'd, I'd say twenty plus different cases and um I don't think we can we, we can go through all of them on on this podcast, but what you see is is repeatedly that the issue that the the court has to consider is whether the bank was on sufficient notice um that the person trying to make the 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 person kind of acting as agent for for the account holder. Whether that person was doing something fraudulent, whether the instruction itself was fraudulent, um, and as we as we've said at the outset of this podcast, the difference here is that the, the, there's no issue of agency. It's it's very much the principal directly saying, "We ignore you. We 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 ignore your warnings. Make the payment now." Um, and in those circumstances, what what duty does the bank have? Or, you know, is is the bank obliged to let you make the mistake, or is the bank obliged to prevent you from making the mistake? And I think it's just if you if you look at it from that perspective, then in my view, the, the decision is the right one here, because the bank shouldn't be the arbiter of whether you're making a mistake or not.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that was the point that uh, Justice Leggett so eloquently put. When you're looking at the duty to exercise reasonable care and skill in complying with that mandate, and you're looking at whether the bank has complied with its duties, it's very difficult to reason that the duty of care and skill carrying out the customer's instructions would ever lead to a conclusion that you should reasonably and with care and skill carry out the customer's instructions by not carrying out the customer's instructions. That's a difficulty with the with the way that the uh the the duty was formulated in the quince case
0: yeah i think that's exactly that's right it's an interesting point and i think where the where the supreme court gets to in this decision is quite an interesting place because they effectively say there's nothing special about this duty it's it, it's not it's not some kind of new piece of law that came in and in, you know in, in the late 80s early 90s and since then it's really changed the dynamic of banking it's not that at all it's it's a it's a historic duty of a bank. It's, it's a historic general duty of care that a bank has had to interpret the the customer's instructions and um, and act on them. But also that where the bank is put on inquiry that the instructions have not come from the customer, the bank is not required to, um, or, or the bank is in fact positively required to look into the source of the instructions and make sure that those instructions are in fact from the customer.
1: And as a result, that it's all simply a straightforward application of agency.
0: And that actually takes up, you know, the, the agency, the, the the agency piece in this decision is, is quite substantial. When, when I was reading through this judgment, which is I think maybe not scathing in its critique of the initial Quince care case, but it's not far off. You know, some of the, the there was a bit highlighted here where if effectively what the, what, the, um, what the Supreme Court says is that the, the problem with the with quince care duty, or the problem with the way that the quince care duty is framed in the quince care case, it, it kind of starts from a false premise. And the false premise is that is that the, the bank has been given an order that it has to follow, or the bank has the bank's been given an order that prima facie it has to follow. In this case, the, the, the judgment says, having perceived a conflict which does not in reality exist, Justice sustained have no principled way in which to resolve it. Um, I, that, that jumped out to me as quite a uh, quite sharp language. Um, but the point, the point really is, if you look at this from the perspective of some kind of new duty that you're trying to impose on on the, on the way that a bank interacts with its customers, then you're doomed to fail because you're you're necessarily creating a situation that that the rest of the world of law hasn't really, uh, or the rest of the you know the, the body of English law hasn't really considered the situation, whereas if you strip, strip it back and look at it from first principles, what's a bank's duty to its customer? What are the principles of agency? Then actually you realize that the picture is a lot clearer, but also the duty doesn't necessarily um,
1: exist. And that, and that I think, it, it takes us to an interesting question, which is, it's evidently everyone sees the issue with APP fraud and ABP fraud is considered something that the courts want to tackle and they do want to impose duties on the banks to try and limit, uh, given that the bank is in such a powerful position and it has all of the resources and, and it has the ability to try and prevent this fraud much better than the everyday consumer who's played up and tricked up in the fraud. Uh, it seems like the interests of justice should put that duty on the bank but as Justice Leggett makes clear, the imposition of that duty has to have a sound judicial base. It can't proceed from this uh, sui generis duty of the, the Queen's Care duty as, as uh, was initially posited by uh, Justice Stay,
0: or a legislative duty as they say in the you know at some point as the supreme court often does in its in its decisions um particularly when it's when it's making a decision which is perhaps unpopular with um an individual they you know and and this is this is true as a matter of law but i think that there's there's always an interesting thing when you're reading supreme court judgments i think the the supreme court is is maybe more aware than the commercial courts beneath it that their judgment might be read by you know, for anyone with an interest in in law rather than necessarily commercial parties. And and often the 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 judgments written by this were handed down by the Supreme Court for that reason are very readable, very clear, and aren't shy about restating fresh principles. And one of the principles that they state here is look, we we can't create a legal duty that doesn't exist. We have a um we we can we can implement a duty which does exist or we can Implement something which which the UK Parliament, in by an act of Parliament, has said exists, but we can't just create a duty out of out of thin air. Um, and it's one of it's almost one of the judgments where they're kind of asking Parliament, you know, do you want to do something here? Do you want to recognise this issue and maybe jump in and um, and create a framework for us to you know to to be able to use in in finding that banks do have this duty? Yeah, I I still have some. Issues with that in principle as a matter of policy that the bank would be the one that says you can't make that payment because we deem that it might be fraudulent. There, there is there is a conflict between what a bank, you know. I suppose if, if the shoe's on the other foot and you're saying, No, I want you to make this payment. Um, it's not fraudulent. I want you to go ahead and make it. And the bank is saying to you, I'm sorry, but we can't. Policy says any payment that you're making to these people um, or anyone with this, you know, the PE the has this name in it and therefore that's flagged something up on the system. It's going to take us another week to make sure your payment goes through. There, there are lots of situations where you actually, this is really irritating. I want you to make the payment that I've asked
1: for. And how many times have we even seen Callum? in our cases that uh, the timing of the payment is critical to the party's obligation? Really good point. If you, If
0: you, you know, maybe one for the for the um shipping listeners around us but you know everyone will realize how important payment of hire is you know timely payment of hire in and in the charter party context if if a bank steps in and says actually it's going to take me a week to make sure you're not you're not doing anything fraudulent here or you're not being defrauded um then that you know a lot of the world of of commerce relies on on banks executing payment instructions swiftly and without without really you know questioning save for things like uh Sanctions and you know other other issues where the banks are potentially liable themselves, but but generally allowing the the account holder to make a payment without questioning whether that payment is is made fraudulently or is is made pursuant to a fraud um, is one of the real tenets of of banking practice, um, and it I think there is a difficulty with just riding over it um, because of fraudulent activity. I, I suppose the the answer is is in somehow stopping fraud um but i think that's a very difficult thing to do I, th- I i strongly suspect actually this kind of problem this individual fraud is going to get significantly worse by you know by by alarming factors with um the rise of ai and um the ability to fake voices fake conversations fake videos it, it, actually fraud is probably going to be completely rampant and it would be so so high tech and so developed to the point where a bank would probably struggle to to impose any kind of reasonable um assessment on whether someone is being defrauded um within a reasonably short period of time from now.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think another point which was made really well in, in the judgment is the standard one of the reasons why it should be left potentially to the legislature rather than the courts to grapple with this issue is it would seem to me that the standard is totally different for a consumer like Dr. Phillips, who's been subject to a very sophisticated fraud, than a commercial party or a, a shipping company, which would have its mm. own sophisticated accounts team. They've received training, and they've received they've got guidelines and procedures and policies in place to try and prevent this fraud. Uh, legislation can deal with that, and they can create separate classes of consumers and, and companies, and separate those the application of those principles out. But uh, interested to see what you whether you agree with that, Calvin, whether you think that actually you know there there is a role here for the courts to try and still impose this duty on the banks, or whether really they should just stay clear and leave it to the legislature.
0: I think the banks should be required to make sure that the person giving the instruction has authority to give that instruction. And if the bank is on notice that the person may not have that authority, then they should be investigating whether or not that person has that authority. I think that's sensible. I think that makes sense. Um, and I think yeah as the as the judgment makes very clear, that's in line with with all principles of of a bank's, you know, bank bank's duties historically, but also principles of um apparent authority and um actual authority. I, I don't think that there should be a duty imposed on a bank, whether by the courts or by the parliament, um, to say that the bank is liable for a, a fraud committed on the person who then instructs the bank to make payment pursuant to the fraud. I don't think it's dealing with the problem in the right way. Um, I think that there probably is going to be a massive problem with fraud in the, in the next, I guess, five to ten years. Probably sooner than that, given how fast everything's developing. I just think that, that solving the problem by penalizing a bank that pays out against the fraud would be a very difficult position. It, 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 it would put a lot of payments in a very difficult position, it, and it, it's hard to, and particularly on this push payment side, because you it, this isn't some this isn't a situation where the bank realizes, oh, you know um Callum has added a new payee to his account and he's now trying to transfer his his entire savings out of his account to that new payee this is suspicious flag it right that's that's your that's your pool payment um situation where, where someone's kind of found a way to hack your hack into your bank account and they're trying to pull everything out of it this is a different one this is this is where i go in and i say to the bank hey i want to make this transfer to um to leo and the bank doesn't investigate Leo and and I then turn around and say, oh actually, if you hadn't investigated him, you would have seen it was a fraud. Sure. But it's also on me to investigate before I ask for the payment to go out. And that's that's maybe kind of unsympathetic or um or you know, you know, prioritizing the bank over the um over the individual. But I think these things do come full circle and you would end up in a position where the bank would have to spend so much time investigating every payment you try to make that you'd end up it would actually end up being worse for a, for a consumer um, to deal with that sort of situation. There probably needs to be a lot of education around these kinds of frauds um, and there already is but uh, but I do think it's uh, something that will probably get worse before it gets better and I, and I dare say that uh, Dr and Mrs Phillips are not going to be the last people who are unfortunately you know suckered by one of these uh, horrible you know, horrible stories where they, where they've lost all of their all of their life savings, which is a slightly it's a sad note to end on, really. Um, but I think I think it's pro- you know it's probably where we are with the, with um, with banking law. I suppose to r- round one thing off, we had a guest on the podcast um, not too long ago, Matt McGee, uh, barrister at twenty twenty Essex Chambers, and we were discussing a Hong Kong case that looked at the at the quince care duty i don't think i'm open to be corrected by matt if he's he's listening in on this but i don't i don't think that this decision would have had a huge bearing on the hong kong case uh on the grounds that the hong kong case was looking at the kind of classic quince care uh question of whether or not um the authority was was good it was it was one of those authority situations rather than a uh um, a kind of personal interest, as as we had here, or it were a direct instruction from the person responsible. But subject to that Leo, I think we can we can we can park this one. We can land it. That's yeah, great. I
1: completely agree. It's been a um a, an interesting discussion that's thrown up a, a lot of curveballs in terms of how we go forward and deal with these issues. But ultimately, I think it's all going to be resolved through. Led the legislature, and it's not going to be something that is legislative that is going to be put through and developed through a novel duty, uh, which is precisely, I think, we've discussed the, the the best way to deal with this.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Leah, for coming on. Um, I think probably nor- normal service resumed next week when when Luke is back, but. Um... It was it was a pleasure having you on. Um, appreciate your time and thank you everybody for listening. Um, as as Luke always says, please please do like us or share or whatever button uh, you're being prompted to push on your streaming platform. Um, we do appreciate it. And if you have any questions or comments or queries or you want us to do a particular case, always open to those uh, to those kind of suggestions. So thank you everybody for listening in. Thank you, Leah, for joining us. And uh, goodbye.